Hey, as we celebrate Christmas, we just sang about this theme, um, but a couple, couple big words maybe we don't use all the time. Um, the theological term for what happened at Christmas is the incarnation. Are we saying the incarnate Word of God, right? It means that God himself put on flesh. And he came and he dwelt among us. That's what Jesus did when he was born in a manger. And that's what we're celebrating. We're not just celebrating a manger. We're not just celebrating a baby. That's a little silly. We're celebrating that God came to be with us. That's what the incarnation is. Now, the beauty of this theme is that God from the very beginning all the way to the very end of Scripture, this is his heart. He wants to be God with us. And that's why one of the names in the prophecies is he will be called Emmanuel. It's the Hebrew word for God with us. And many times we think, oh, that just means this right here, this scene, this thing we celebrate the 25th of December. But I want you to see today that this has been God's heart all along. And this is a small piece of that puzzle. So let's look at it together. This is going to be Bible drill day, all right? So if you, if you don't have fast fingers, that's all right. It'll be on the screens. But I want us to start at the very beginning, the very beginning of all things, Genesis 1 and 2. And God created the world and everything in it. And he, he made all the stuff, but he created this special creation, humanity, Adam and Eve, And he put them in the garden as his image bearers. And he told them to work it, to keep it, to expand it. And it was a place. It was this space where God could dwell with humanity. And they walked together in this this garden. This is God's purpose. The very beginning before anything is ever broken. God wants to be with us. And he wants us to be with him. This is the point. This is the intended purpose purpose. But it didn't take but that long for us to mess it up. Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 8. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The enemy enters the picture, Satan, the serpent, and he tempts Adam and Eve with a totally different truth claim than what God had said. God had said, I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want us to have a relationship. And the enemy came in and tempted them with more, with something different. And he convinces them to follow his word, not God's word. See, the enemy's desire is always against this. He does not want God with us, and he does not want us with God. He wants separation. He wants brokenness. He wants division. 
And Adam and Eve, when they sinned the very first time, it broke the fellowship that they had with God. And no longer were they with God and God with them, but now there was separation. No longer did they walk unashamed in the presence of the Lord in the garden with him, but they had to cover themselves. They had to leave the garden. And their children and children's children and children's children's children and us today live in a world that is broken and separated from God. There is a gap. There is a distance. This is not how it was intended to be. We were not meant to be by ourselves. We were not intended to be without God. And so God, seeing this, immediately made a promise to fix what they had broken. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. I will put enmity, I will put hatred and war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's, it's poetic language, but here's what's happening. God is promising from the very beginning, right after sin enters the picture, that he would send a son of Eve, a son of Adam, a son of man, who would come and he would war with the enemy who had caused this uh, brokenness and this separation. He would come and that, that son of Eve would crush the serpent's head and this the serpent would crush his heel, right? It would be a, a fatal blow to him as well. God promises from the very beginning to, to fix our problem, our main problem, that we do not have God with us. And this son of man would be the one who would be the solution to that promise. Now that was a long time ago. And that promise took a long time to fulfill and so in time, the world that God had created, the world d spiraled downward quickly, right? And, and the world that God had created, it fractured and it broke into more and more sin, more and more rejection of God and his ways, more and more separation between humanity and God. And in time, it got so bad that God... Uh, it, it scripture says, and we're not going to read it, he, he lamented the fact that he had ever made them, right? He, and, and he, in his holiness, he decides to pour out his wrath in the form of a flood. And he's going to get rid of all of them and start over some way, all right? But God's heart, even though he was rightfully angry at their sin that had caused this separation, he sees a righteous man, Noah, right? And Noah walked in God's ways. He wasn't perfect, um, but he was uh, walking in God's ways. And God told Noah to build this ark to save himself, to save his family, and anyone else who would get on this boat. And God is showing us here that God wants relationship with us. Usually it's our problem. Usually it's our issue that's causing us to be separate from God. He's, he, he wants to restore that relationship. And the only thing standing in that way is sin. And sin will continue to stand in the way unless it's dealt with fully and finally. 
Now, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's a number of kind of temporary band-aids, a number of temporary fixes that kind of bring God back closer to his people, that kind of bring his people closer to him. But none of them really heal the ultimate problem. None of them fix, fix it fully and finally. They don't solve the problem that we are not with God and God is not with us fully. Ten generations after Noah, about 272 years, I did the math this week, there was a son of man, right? A son of man born to a man named Terah, and his name was Abram. And God looked down on Abraham, and he chose to bless him. Just like he looked down on Noah, and he, he used him to save his people. God looks down on Abram, and he promises to be with Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, here's what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God chooses Abram, and he says, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to be a blessing to all the earth. God chooses him to be his people. He chooses Abram and his descendants to be his people. God is working this plan to redeem his people back to himself. He's making a way for them to dwell with him. He's making a way for the enemy to be crushed and for God's people to be set free from their main problem, which is sin. And he's going to use Abram and his family to do that. Genesis 17, here's what he says, Genesis 17, 7 through 8. He says, I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. That's a promise to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, God's desire is to have a people and a place that he dwells with them. And it seems like as he promises to give Abram, now a people, a place, the land, that maybe this is the fix. Maybe God will be with them Maybe this is the, the land. These are the people that are going to walk with him and dwell with him and, and live with him as they were intended to be. Because that's what God wants. He wants to be near his children like any good father. And in time, Abram and Sarah are finally able to have a kid after being barren. Isaac and Esau. And then Isaac has Jacob, who eventually his name is changed to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who are highly dysfunctional, right? Highly dysfunctional. We won't go into all the details of that today. But they have all kinds of separation and sin problems within their family. This is the family that God has chosen to save the world, to bless the world, to be his God, be their God. And the oldest 10 of these sons of Israel, what do they do? They hatch this plan out of jealousy, out of, out of all kinds of weird motives. They hatch this plan to sell their brother into slavery, Joseph. 
And it seems as the story goes along that maybe the same thing is happening that happened up to Noah, that things are just getting worse after worse. There's more and more separation. There's more and more sin. Maybe God's going to step in and instead of saving them, maybe he's going to wipe them out again. Things are getting bad. But a key theme begins to develop in Scripture very early on. That God uses what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it to good. And so what the enemy meant for evil in the garden of separating us from God, God's going to turn that for good. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God uses that and turns it for good. It takes time, but God is working this plan. And in time, there, there happens to be a famine in all the land. But God uses the evil that those ten brothers did to bring about good. He sent Joseph to Egypt to prepare the way and for his people to be saved. And through Joseph and Jacob and their twelve sons, they go to Egypt and they're saved. And they begin to multiply into a great number of people. Here's how Joseph says it in Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you... Speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In time, though God's people are multiplying and prospering in Egypt, there comes a Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, right? And what happens the Pharaoh begins to be threatened by these prospering, multiplying people. And he makes Abram's people, God's people, he makes them his, his slaves. He puts them in subjection and forces them to do what he wants, to follow his word, not God's word. And the people of God spent 400 years, that's longer than the United States has been in existence. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They were not dwelling with God. They were not walking in his ways. But God was working his plan to save them and to restore his presence with them. And in time, God raised up a deliverer named who? Moses, right? Who would save his people from their slavery. Here's what he says in Exodus 6, 7. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, though Moses wasn't well-spoken or even powerful or anything, God used him to bring this word to Pharaoh, let my people go. And God brought ten plagues and all kinds of other signs in order to rescue his people out of Egypt. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with us. And eventually Pharaoh relents and they are released into the wilderness. Now think about this. When they go to the wilderness, there's a very visible presence of God with them. What was it? Cloud by day. And a fire by night. For the first time as a people, they all of a sudden have a physical representation of God's presence with them. And this cloud by day and this fire by night, they could look, they could see it, and they knew where to go. And God leads them to the Red Sea. Only one problem, they don't have boats. <laughs> and they have no way to get around it. And Pharaoh's coming up behind them. 
But God leads them there, and he splits the sea wide open so that they can walk to safety, and Pharaoh is crushed behind them. And the people, when they get to the other side, they rejoice. Why? Not just because they're no longer in slavery, not just because they've made it across the sea. They rejoice because God's presence is with them. And it now defines who they are as a people. That's another key theme in Scripture, that it's God's presence with us that defines us as His people. It's not religious observance. It's not a certain skin color. It's not anything else. What defines us as a people is God's presence with us. Here's what they sang in Exodus 15, 1 and 2, and then verse 13. He says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then skip down to verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, your place, your dwelling, right? You see this theme? God wants to be with his people. And God leads them through the wilderness. And he uses Moses and Joshua and others to lead them through the wilderness. And they're going to go to what? Where? The promised land. The land that God had promised Abram. And they're going to go there and take possession of it. But God, throughout the wilderness, continues to promise over and over that he will be their God who dwells with them. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. We could look at a number of other places. He says this, but he says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, hate you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And they experienced that in the wilderness in the form of a tabernacle, this temporary dwelling that they lived in. And as they finally take possession of the land, they go in, they, they, they win it, and it's theirs. And, and there's this hope that now maybe we have a people, we have a land, maybe here God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him Maybe it'll all be right and good. Maybe it'll all be what we want. They have God's law. They know what he wants from them. They have the sacrifices. They know how to be forgiven of sin, at least temporarily. They have the land, so maybe this is it. But if you know the story, it's hardly the case. In time, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God's people continually run after other gods, other gods, other kings, other leaders, other idols, other things to worship. They wanted and continued to follow their own path, not God's. And God sent them leaders and judges and prophets and guides to point them back to what you need is God with you. What you need is to walk in God's ways and for him to walk with you. But they chose sin over and over. They chose to be separated from God. In time, Things got so bad that God had to send his judgment on them as a people so that they would see the error of their ways. Their kingdom of 12 tribes has been split into two, division. And eventually it's conquered by these other nations, division. 
And the people are carried into exile all over the place, most of them for 70 years. They are fully separated from the land, fully separated from the temple, fully separated from God. And though the situation seems dire, God has not abandoned them. And while they are in exile, God sends them countless prophets who proclaimed to them what God wanted and how God would go about it. Let me just read a few of these. Jeremiah 7, 23. He says, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I commanded you that it may be well with you. Ezekiel 14, 11 says that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me nor defile themselves anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. God's desire is to be with his people, even though they're scattered and exiled and separated from him. And while they're in exile, the prophets began to speak about how God was going to bring them back. And here's some of that. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name. What? Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. This son of man will be called the, the son of God. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God has been working this plan from the very beginning, the very beginning promise in Genesis 3 to do what? To send a son to crush the enemy. And now this son is no, not just a son of Eve. Who is it? He's a son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. Now this is still 600 years before Jesus comes. And in time, the people of God eventually returned to the land. They rebuilt the temple, kind of. And, and, and they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And it's why we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Right? This is the kind of waiting that they're doing. O come, O come. For 600 years, they wait and they long for Emmanuel to come and to fulfill his promise for God to be with them. And that brings us to this moment right here. The moment we commemorate every December 25th for various and sundry reasons, right? Christmas is so much more. It is God fulfilling his promise from a long, long time ago to rescue and save his people. And it's God fulfilling his promise to be with us. How did he do that? He sent his son to be born of woman, to live the perfect life, to die the death that we deserve and to rise again to conquer death. How does God fix this? It wasn't by sacrifices. It wasn't by temples. It wasn't by land. It wasn't by laws. How does he fix it? Himself, his own presence, God with us. 
He doesn't send someone else to do it. He comes himself. Why? Because what we need is God himself. That's what defines us as his people. We don't need his benefits, his rewards, his stuff. We need God himself. Here's a few ways the New Testament talks about this. John 1, 4 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. I think that's John 1.14, not 1.4. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, right? Finally, this promise is going to be fulfilled. God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Philippians 2.8 and being found in human form, talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, talking about who they are as a people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's a beautiful truth of what Christmas is all about. But can I just tell you, it's not the end of the story. If you just stop today and all we do is celebrate Christmas, there's so much more that God wants to do. You see, as Jesus came and accomplished this purpose of being born in human flesh, dying the death we deserved, all that sort of stuff that we talk about all the time, and he purchased the people for himself. No longer was the, the defining characteristic of being God's people being a son of Abraham or being a worshiper at the temple or being in the land of Canaan, now Israel. That's not the defining characteristic. The defining characteristic is belief in Jesus. But Jesus left. And as Jesus leaves, what does he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to do what? To be God with us. John 14, verse 16 and 17. Jesus teaches, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He's talking about the Spirit. To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The defining characteristic of us as the people of God is what? That the Spirit lives inside of us. And for every one of us who believes in Jesus, that is true. It is God with us. See, without God's presence, God's people have never had identity nor power nor, nor the ability to carry out God's ways or to, to live as God's people. And that's true today. Without the Spirit, we cannot live as God's people. We cannot live in His ways. But for every one of us who has believed in Jesus and been saved, God's Spirit has made His home where? In us. To guide us, to lead us, to correct us. It's not a cloud by day and a fire by night, but it's in our hearts that teaches us and guides us and corrects us. And it empowers us to dwell with God in God's ways. 
Now, having the Holy Spirit is this vast improvement over a cloud by day or a tabernacle or even a temple. But can I just say this? It's not the end. This is not the final goal, right? This is a vast improvement over the sacrificial system and the laws and the temples. But this pales in in comparison to what God's ultimate plan is. The final picture in Scripture of God's presence is that of what? Heaven. That all who believe in Jesus will spend eternity with God. We will be with God forever and He will be with us. In that place, we will live perfectly with God and everything that is broken will be restored and made new. Here's how he says it in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city near Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I hope you can see this one glorious truth today. As we sit in this season that we call Christmas, that God wants to be with us. God desires to be with us. And God wants us to be with Him. He wants us to walk in His ways, to live like Him. God has moved heaven and earth from the very beginning. No cost was too great. No obstacle was too big to overcome. God moved heaven and earth to be with us. He sent Jesus to be born of woman, to live a perfect life, to die the death we deserved, so that he could purchase us, what? A people for his own possession, so that we might dwell with him forever. That's our defining characteristic. That's our defining characteristic. It's not our wit. It's not our strength. It's not our money. It's not our buildings. It's not our anything. What defines us as God's people? His presence with us. And so the simple question today is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Holy Spirit, God, with us? And will you spend eternity with God forever, dwelling with him? He is our God, and we are his people. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this yearly reminder that we choose to celebrate and we get to celebrate that you put on flesh and dwelt among us. God, what grace and what mercy that is. God, I pray that as we do a lot of other things over the next week, God, I pray that we would sit and contemplate at least once. God, that you want to be with us. God, that makes no sense. But you love us anyway, and you died to save us. 
And so, God, we celebrate this year not just that there's joy and peace and love and all those sorts of things, God, but that you came to be with us. Thank you, God, for that. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.